Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors Series podcast. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and Editor of Top1000Funds.com. And my guest today is Ash Williams, who's the Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer of the Florida State Board of Administration. Welcome to you, Ash. Thank you, Amanda, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you this afternoon. So before we get stuck into uh, some some questions about the investments, Ash, how are things for you in Florida? How are you holding up down there? I'm happy to say we're doing very well. We have an our, uh, on our team over 200 people, uh, fingers crossed and knock on wood, but we've not had a single case of COVID among our employees. Um, we started operating remotely in early March. That was a fairly seamless experience for us, unlike a number of our public fund peers, for the simple reason that we get an exercise in remote working almost every year, courtesy of a little thing known as hurricane season. Um, we have very robust systems for uh, business uh, continuity and systems redundancy, so we have the ability to uh, switch our networks to different places if, if our building is affected by weather or internal problems specific to the building itself or just about anything else that might interfere. So uh, we were able to make the decision to protect the safety of all of our folks to go remote early on, and we've been operating that way for the better part of six months since. That's good news. Yeah, you've certainly been... Uh... Uh, fighting your, your battles down down there, not only uh, what the rest of the world's facing with COVID, but also, as you say, hurricane season. So we'll come to that in a little while. But I just wanted to kind of um, kind of paint the scene a little bit. You you joined Florida State Board of Administration in October 2008, which uh, some might say was a brave move in terms of the timing, at least. Tell, <laughs> tell me what your experience is of this crisis compared to the global financial crisis and when you when you first started at SBA and and what you're doing differently this time around sure that's a that's a wonderful contrast to draw amanda i would say that the great financial crisis was really a completely different experience from the standpoint that it was an economic crisis that evolved from excesses in certain sectors and a sort of a missile, a systematic misalignment across buyers and sellers of certain assets, primarily real assets. Uh, people involved in, in that chain, real estate industry, the appraisal industry, the lending industry, uh, up to and including the the manufacturers, for lack of a better term, of financial instruments. So pooled uh, mortgage security vehicles, whether commercial or retail, CLOs, uh, CDOs, et cetera. Everybody involved in that process had something to gain by keeping the music playing, to paraphrase the former uh, chief executive of Citigroup. And when it all came tumbling down, it took a long, long time to put things back together and for Humpty to get back on the wall. And if you recall, you had devastation simultaneously in the real economy and in the financial economy as reflected by financial markets. That went on for a number of years. Things really began to weaken in 2007 and 
uh, things didn't really start to firm until several years later. Markets tanked, businesses tanked, real asset values tanked, everything tanked. This time around, you had something different. You didn't have a systemic crisis. You had a global pandemic. So you had a health crisis that physically intervened in economies and caused them to shut down, which in turn called, caused all sorts of uh, problems in terms of foregone revenues, much less profits, um, wholesale interruptions of normal processes of consumption and production. And you saw an extraordinarily rapid destruction of value in financial markets uh, and an almost immediate cessation of commercial activity. You saw transportation stop, leisure activities, hospitality activities, everything stopped all at once. So you, you made a bottom in looking back on this, you made a bottom in about a month's time and then started a recovery on the financial market side that has proven to be pretty much of a V and you're now back scratching against all-time highs in many markets around the world, in the financial markets. However, if you look at the underlying real economies, the recovery is not there. Uh, you had a partial reopening of various economies around the world, which in turn caused, uh, led to uh, renewed outbreaks of contagion and caused things to close down again. So. In this country, for example, we've seen several iterations of uh, fiscal policy designed to replace lost wages, to bar landlords from evicting tenants who are behind uh, in their rents, um, and to create various other forms of short-term financial support. Um, but the actual unemployment has remained very, very high equal to roughly where we were at the bottom of the great financial crisis. So to me, there's a bit of a disconnect in financial markets, and you can illustrate it with a few extreme moves. I mean, you can look at something like, like Tesla, which has moved up very, very dramatically lately, and say, gee, you know, how can this thing be selling at the multiple that it is selling at relative to something like uh, General Motors, um, if you look at the last quarter sales at Tesla, uh, every dollar of earnings was valued at $73 by the global equity market. Uh, looking at General Motors as a contrast, uh, that multiple is $2.50. One of them sold a lot of cars all over the world, uh, 3 million to be specific in GM's case, and uh, uh, Tesla only sold 360,000. So you can look at that as an example of some of the valuations that seem a bit stretched. Look at the narrowness of the tech names that have led the U.S. market recovery and have dominated the global recovery and sort of ask the question, what's going on here? What's this disconnect? And is there embedded misery in the economy that has not fully shown itself in securities prices? It's an interesting term in embedded misery. It doesn't paint a very nice picture, but uh, but I hear you. And um, here in Australia, just yesterday, the treasurer announced um, our worst GDP figures in in thirty years, and and now officially in a recession. So, you know, there, I, I agree with you. There's this disconnect between 
what financial markets are doing and what the real economy is doing. And, and you know, your role as a steward of long-term capital, obviously those long-term issues really need to be considered. How, how do you look at those big thematics in, in your portfolio and some of those sort of, you know, really destabilising kind of um, themes that, you know, geopolitical risk, the de-globalisation, healthcare, big data, all of these have accelerated during the crisis. How do you think about those big themes in your decision-making and how do you feed that into your overall portfolio allocations? Well, any sort of change, disruption or dislocation contains two kinds of seeds. It has seeds seeds of threat and loss and seeds of opportunity and gain. And you have to be aware of the existence of each and try and balance your exposure to the two so that over the long term, you survive and prosper. Um, like most large public institutions, we have a substantial amount of our market exposure passively. So you sort of sign on to that ride and it goes where it goes and you take the view that over the longer term, uh, you will be rewarded for taking risk and being a long-term market participant. I think I think that that belief has proven itself over and over and over because with every disruption, there come new opportunities and, and you capture them if you're invested in everything. Uh, in the shorter term, I think what we've done is mind our positioning in ways that in the parts of the portfolio that are actively managed, um, we've tried, we have successfully had uh, benefit from, for example, tech leadership in our private equity uh, portfolio. We, we have overweight to tech and venture there. That's paid us very nicely. Um, we've had certain parts of our real estate book benefit like uh, healthcare exposures. Um, and other areas where we've seen some short-term challenges, it's just too early to say how they'll work out. Probably one of the, the biggest unknowables at this point is what happens to um, gateway city stabilized office real estate. Think about New York as an example or any other major city where you've had a disease outbreak, you have had a closure of major office buildings, um, You've had an exodus of people from various cities because um, if you're in a city, it's usually because of the vibrant uh, cultural and social aspects of the city. But when no one is going outside and museums and theaters and restaurants are essentially closed, if not really closed, then the positive sides of being in a city are gone. And all you're, all you're left with is living in a small space at a high price um, and it's not as fulfilling. So you've seen an explosion all over the country of people, people who can going to other places to uh, do their jobs virtually. That has led to uh, pretty in, pretty hot markets in uh, resort areas and uh, second home areas around the country. And it just shows that there's there's something going on here. A lot of organizations are working remotely. And they're doing pretty well while they're doing it. So what happens from here uh, going forward? How many people come back to a conventional daily presence in an office, particularly if it involves a long commute, et cetera? What's going on with that? And I think the answer is we don't know yet. It's just too early to say. I do believe 
that the creative processes of humankind are stimulated by people being together, even more together than a, a video conference uh, can, can, um, can uh, support. And so probably offices do come back. It just remains to be seen how. They'll probably be less dense. There'll be some component of people working remotely. I would, I would compare it perhaps to what's happened with financial firms in a lot of cities where if you take London as an example, a lot of organizations historically in the financial industry operated down in the city. Their whole business was in one place. Obviously, London is a very expensive place to operate. And what you're now seeing is a lot of firms operate with their front office, their client-facing people, their, their senior PMs, uh, and key financial decision makers in the city in London or in Midtown in Manhattan. Um, but the middle office and back office might have been moved to an, uh, an area with lower overhead. Um, I think you may see that with more and more industries, not, not just the investment industry, and in more and more markets you know, going on down the line from the big gateway markets to secondary and tertiary markets. Mm. Yeah, certainly a lot more to come, isn't there? So I'm keen, I'm keen to talk to you today about the portfolio and, and the activities of the past few months. You look after $203 billion in assets on behalf of nearly a million current and former public employees, which is obviously a very big responsibility. From a risk management point of view, you've got a, a, a robust process and, and on your website you lay out that you look at market risk, credit risk, interest rate risk, repayment risk, inflation risk, liquidity risk, currency risk, systemic risk, idiosyncratic risk. It seems like a never-ending list of risks. Um, of course, there's others on, not on there, climate risk, geopolitical risk, peer risk, regulatory risk, compliance risk, operational risk, cyber risk, and the list goes on and on and on. So can you talk to us about this risk management process at SBA and how that's helped you uh, manage the portfolio during the past six months and, and what's played out, what you've been able to garner from that risk management process? Sure. I would say on a big picture level, the most important thing we've done in recent years is go from uh, looking at risk in a portfolio risk context to an enterprise risk context. So there, yes, you do have a long list of risks, as, as you just enumerated very artfully. Thank you for your, your patience and dragging through all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but you really have to look more broadly than that. Of course, we have market risk, interest rate risk, counterparty risk, et cetera, that are all specific to investments. And you can quantitatively measure uh, portfolio volatility and equate that as a, as a reflection of risk. And you can budget for a certain amount of risk in every asset class, roll those up into the risk for the aggregate portfolio and put boundaries around, around what is tolerable risk and what is not tolerable risk and how you, at what point you escalate the scrutiny of a given asset class or, or even the total fund if the risk trips whatever the, the boundary is for escalation and how you disclose it, how you mitigate it how you document and all that sort of thing. That's all great. And that is, by the way, how we do it. We have a risk budget that contemplates a certain tolerable level of risk for every asset class. And then you uh, weight each of those asset class risks by the 
target allocation to that class and gross it up into a total fund risk tolerance model and budget. What that doesn't relate to, what that doesn't reflect, though, is equally important as it comes to protecting outcomes um, and achieving objectives for the fund overall. So think of a couple of examples. Think of risks that have nothing to do with a portfolio, but have everything to do with the enterprise. If we had a cyber breach and we somehow were persuaded by some malicious actor to wire a large sum of money to a fraudulent site that wound up being a, a theft, for lack of a better term, that would do reputational risk to us that would cause untold harm well beyond the financial loss. Likewise, if we had a data breach and a lot of sensitive information somehow got out and was misused, that would be very, very destructive. Um, so you have to manage those kinds of risks. You have counterparty risk, um, and not just counterparty risk in the context of completing transactions, but if you're involved with um, an investment manager as an investment partner that uh, turns out to have been involved in some inappropriate activity or, heaven forbid, there's some sort of fraud or anything of that nature, that will splash back on you in a very, very negative way. Um, lastly, and I would say the biggest risk of all that, that we face and that all public pension funds face really isn't portfolio risk at all. It's political risk. Because if you look at the history of pension fund failures around the world, more often than not, the cause has not been a shortfall in investment performance, uh, either long-term or temporary in nature. It has been a failure to fund. And it, that has sometimes been combined with a failure to realistically manage benefit levels. Uh, success of pension funds really depends on three things. It requires reasonable benefits, responsible funding, and prudent investment. Our job is just one of those things, prudent investment. But we do everything we can to be con constructive participants in discussions around funding, of which Florida has a pretty good history, much better than many of our peers, and uh, uh, also the, the benefit levels, which are really not our responsibility, but we, we try and be a resource as those come into consideration from time to time. So on the investment side and, and from a governance point of view, you've got an investment advisory council made up of nine members, which reviews the investments made by the staff and makes recommendations to the board about policy, strategy, procedures. Have you been meeting more regularly with them over the past few months and, and what have been the discussions around that table? Well, the Investment Advisory Council has been a terrific institution for us because by law, the members of that body uh, are required to have institutional fiduciary experience. And over the years, we have had a number of extraordinarily capable investors on that body, several of whom are, are billionaires personally and really know what they're talking about when it comes to investments and markets. And the reason that's so important is that our three trustees are all statewide elected officials, Florida's governor, Florida's attorney general, and our chief financial officer. And uh, 
none of those people necessarily has institutional investment experience. And the way our governance structure works, which is unique and it's been very, very successful, is that the trustees here are not an operating investment committee the way members of a board at some of the other public funds might be. They're a high-level policy body. The members, the trustees, the governor, the attorney general, and the CFO in turn vote on the nine members of the Investment Advisory Council who are confirmed by the Senate, and their role, too, is policy, not individual investments. It's just at a policy level, but that's really helpful because when markets are in extremists or there's any sort of dislocation, uh, that causes anxiety, and it is very, very helpful to our trustees to have their IEC members, uh, as we call the Investment Advisory Council members, in a position of knowledgeable, qualified fiduciary oversight, and to the extent they can back up whatever our perceptions are, or if they think our perceptions are wrong, to say to the trustees, here's what's being represented to you, here's why we may take a differing view, that's very, very helpful. And it tends to give the trustees the comfort they need to be in the right place at the right time even if it's stressful to do so. So I, we have a lot of dialogue with the Investment Advisory Council, and it so happens we had a regular quarterly meeting scheduled uh, for March 31. The timing could not have been better for the onset of the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, we had done individual calls with a number of members of the IEC. I stay in touch with a number of them pretty regularly by phone. And we, what we did was we had a normal quarterly presentation uh, set up for them where, where we have a pre-stated agenda. We're using numbers as of the last quarter for which we had audited numbers, which in March of this year, those would have been, I believe, December 31 numbers. And frankly, in March of 2020, uh, December uh year in 2019 seemed like a different century and there was it just would not have been good use of time to talk about it so instead what we did was call everybody in advance and say listen read all the quarterly materials if you have any questions bring them up we'll cover them but what we think is much more important is to walk you through what we're doing right now in real time because of the covid pandemic how we see this thing playing out in its initial phases operationally and from an, a portfolio management standpoint. And, you know, let's talk about that. Um, we're, we're ready and we think you're going to like what you're going to hear. And we'd welcome any observations you have because all of you have a great deal of experience. So that's how it went. And uh, we've been conducting our investment advisory council meetings virtually um, since that time, and it's gone very well. And we continue to have regular contact with the chair and some of the members of the uh, IEC uh, just in the normal course of business. So let's get a bit more specific with regards to the portfolio positions. What's changed in the last few months? What opportunities have you been able to invest in? And, and what have you sort of occurred in terms of wins and, and losses? What, what does the portfolio movement look like? Sure. Well, I'd say for the most part, um, 
it really has not changed a great deal on the liquid market side. Um, in fixed income, we've moved more to what I would describe as uh, uh, an approach where we were doing a little bit more in the way of enhanced core activity, core plus, if you will, uh, so that we're trying to gain a bit more uh, return by way of credit judgment. Uh, obviously, in this environment, extending duration doesn't seem terribly appealing, um, but that's been a direction there. Um, on the global equity side, um, we, when we did our, well, let me back up. Maybe the most important and fundamental thing to open with there is that with the onset of the pandemic, we made absolutely certain that we had ample liquidity. And the reason we did that is that if you, well, the most fundamental uh, obligation we have is to meet our benefit requirements timely. And to meet those obligations, we analyzed on a forward basis what our payouts were expected to be and went ahead and encumbered that money early on so that if the markets tanked further, we wouldn't be in an adverse position to meet benefit needs. Beyond that, we wanted to be sure we had enough money left for any capital calls because to the extent you have commitments out in private market vehicles that involve callable capital and you have major dislocation, you're very likely to get capital calls and you want to be able to get those funded timely. So we set aside money for that. And then the last thing would be, last two things would be to consider needing cash for rebalancing if equities continue to tank, you want to be able to rebalance back in. That requires liquidity to buy stocks with. Where are you going to get it? And you better be sure you've got it or you won't be able to rebalance, in which case you'll miss any recovery that occurs. So we set aside a chunk of money for rebalancing. Lastly, it's not uncommon for some sort of opportunistic investments to present themselves, and you want to have some liquidity to be able to deal with it. So the very first thing we did when it became clear we were at the front end of something extraordinary in terms of market movement was to position ourselves for liquidity. And the, the way I like to capsulize the importance of liquidity is to say that the difference between being a predator and being prey in a financial dislocation is liquidity. Those who have the liquidity to weather the storm can... Uh, invest money when others can't. And when others become forced sellers, you become the opportunistic buyer. And it's a great way to compound capital over the long term. So starting from there, or moving on from there, when we look at the way we deployed the rebalanced assets, when we uh, bought back into equities uh, when they were down, one of the judgments we took was it would probably make sense to do a higher proportion of this exposure in active management than we otherwise might have, uh, which we did. And part of the reason we did that was you have whole sectors like hospitality and transportation that have just been depressed and devastated by um, the pandemic. And there was no way to know when that would end uh, so we thought, why have a routine exposure to those sectors? Why not let an active manager uh, be involved and make some judgments on that? So we think that has served us well. Um, 
if we look at private market classes in strategic investments, which is our most opportunistic class, um, we think there's a significant opportunity in distressed credit that's continuing to build. So we built some credit exposure there. Um, we have continued to prosecute the pipelines that we had in place um, already for uh, private equity, real estate, and uh, strategic investments. Um, in private equity, we have added exposure to a number of specialty funds in various areas that are particularly well aligned with the opportunity set. A number of these were re-ups with existing funds. I'm not saying we restructured the portfolio. We didn't. We liked the overweights and underweights we had before, and they continue to be positive, so we're continuing to, to maintain them and build them. Um, in real estate, uh, we did one thing that was kind of a joint venture between uh, real estate and, and strategic investments, which is you remember early on in the pandemic when you were seeing sort of rolling, isolated seizures in various parts of the securities markets around the world. One of the first things that came under stress was publicly traded REITs. And the reason was the REITs had a lot of leverage. And um, to the extent they could not roll their uh, credit lines, they had problems uh, meeting their obligations. And that became an early source of stress the Fed eventually came in and backed them up, but it did create a period where there was a real disconnect between the prices of the publicly traded REITs and what some of their underlying assets were worth. So um, we got with one of our existing REIT partners and uh, put together an initiative in which we um, helped fund a new vehicle that would very, very opportunistically go out and take advantage of some of those short-term dislocations in the REIT space. I think that's worked pretty well. Um, and some of the other areas, we have continued um, growing multifamily exposures in some markets and industrial exposures. We've sold a few assets um, that had become fairly richly valued and provided opportunities to exit. Um, and as I touched on earlier, I think some areas, uh, obviously retail and office to a lesser degree, have great big question marks on them, and time will tell how those play out. So in, in addition to managing pension assets, you also manage the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund. I'm interested yes, we um, interested to, to kind of touch on that a little bit and, and sort of from, from a, an ideological point of view, how, how has being at the forefront of extreme weather and managing money for that shaped the way that you think about sustainability issues? Sure. Well, the managing the money of the hurricane catastrophe fund is the least of it. <laughs> uh, the asset management for the, the cat fund, as we call it, is very straightforward because the priorities are safety and liquidity because you have to assume that in any given year, the entire amount could be called. So you really can't afford to take a lot of long-term illiquidity or volatility risk because you may need the money sooner rather than later. Um, with the cap fund, we actually do the underwriting and provide a portion of the windstorm catastrophe cover, very much the way reinsurance works, 
for all of the residential primary insurers in Florida. So that that business brings in over a billion dollars in premium. Our maximum liabilities are $17 billion. They're capped by statute. And um, we set the premium every year uh, for every market in Florida by zip code. So we're actually underwriting the underlying risks and understanding it. And to your point about extreme weather, you couldn't be more right. Now, that's the downside of it. We do seem to be in a period where we're seeing storms and weather events around the world with greater ferocity and at greater frequency. Um, at the same time, structures have improved. Uh, their resilience is superior, substantially superior to what it was pre-Hurricane Andrew, which was the you know, mega storm uh, down in Southeast Florida that led to the creation of the Hurricane Catastrophe Fund uh, in the wake of the private reinsurance industry simply pulling capital out of the Florida market in 1992 and three in the wake of Hurricane Andrew. Uh, so I think coming back to your question, we understand how just how disruptive changes in weather can be. And that is part of the thinking that goes into um, how we integrate ESG into our investment processes and our risk assessment and really, it's as simple as going back to traditional Graham and Dodd investment analysis, where you look at the durability of the, the resource flows that are needed to create a good or service, labor, expertise, materials, um, how, you, how you manage the organization, what's the governance of the organization, and how good is it so that you can keep the organization together keep growing, keep learning, scale it up uh, to the extent your good or service that you're making is successful and well-received in the marketplace, then you need to make more of it, but you need to do it consistently at an appropriate quality level. And to the extent the need set that motivates your consumer to buy your good or service, to the extent that need set changes, then you need to evolve uh, swiftly and efficiently to adjust to that change in your, your market base. And lastly, you need to do all those things in a way that there's a positive spread between your production costs and your selling costs inclusive of distribution. It's called profit margin. So really, in our view, ESG has always been there as part of the analysis. It's just a question of it being called out and labeled separately. And I guess for the Florida State Board, uh, the part of ESG that we have the, the longest and deepest involvement in is the G, governance. Um, Florida State Board is one of the founding members of the Council of Institutional Investors, the largest corporate governance organization in the world, and arguably the most influential. A number of us here have been board members or board chairs uh, I'm chairman of the board of CII currently, and I chaired the executive committee of the CII back when I was at the state board in the early 90s. Um, so we're very involved in corporate governance. We vote shares all over the world. Um, we do it on a policy-driven basis. The Investment Advisory Council that we spoke of earlier uh, reviews our corporate governance guidelines every year and 
makes a recommendation to the trustees. The trustees approve them too. And then we we exercise proxy proxies around the world consistent with those policies. It's worked very well. And it's it's helped us uh, have a very effective uh, activist investing program as well. Um, so I think ESG relates well to a fundamental investing approach. And I think more and more people realize that if you can't take care of your people, take care of your customers, take care of your supply chain, protect the integrity of your reputation and your credibility in the marketplace, your customers can vote with their feet. More often than not, there's more than one supplier, whatever it is a business is offering to the world. And particularly younger people these days seem to really like the idea of aligning their consumption activity with companies that they believe has some alignment of values with their own and is willing to do good things in the world. And the idea of doing well by doing good has never been more valid than it is now. So, Ash, prior to your time leading the Florida State Board of Administration, you spent many years in funds management, including leading Schroders in New York. I'm interested in your kind of reflections of the asset management industry and the evolution in the last um, 10 years, maybe where it's going to go in the future and what you think needs to change in particular, what needs to change in the way asset owners and asset managers work together? Sure. Well, I think there's several things that are at play here. Um, first of all, long before we got into a zero interest rate environment and long before the pressures of demographics, uh, deglobalization, some of the other things began really putting downward pressure on forward-looking returns, there was tremendous price pressure within the industry. Pricing power was weak, particularly in uh, the liquid asset classes. And uh, uh, managers, I think, have been put in a position of being pressed hard by people like the Florida State Board on their fee structures um, to create better alignment. Uh, likewise, on the private market side, I think there's been a lot of pressure to create better alignment. Um, the hedge fund industry has been a great example where um, if you went back to the, say, 2000 to 2007 time period, 2000, 2006 maybe, hedge funds were bringing in crazy amounts of new assets. They had pretty aggressive fee structures and everybody was happy because returns were good. And then they went through a period of having returns that were judged to be not that great, but the fee, fee structure didn't change. And that led to a loss of assets, a recutting of a lot of terms, et cetera. I think the hedge fund industry is now back in the mode of gaining assets again, but part of it has been, there's been a real effort to create more alignment with client interests. I don't think you can ever overdo that. And it's important. So that's, that's one general thing I would offer is the difficulty of maintaining the sort of fee levels that have historically existed in the industry. Second thing is an opportunity, and that is that the world as a whole and industrialized, mature democracies around the world have a major problem in that we have aging societies who have not adequately reserved uh, savings to replace income lost in retirement. Australia obviously has the superannuation funds. 
they've done a very thoughtful job of building a national policy structure to drive the savings that need to be there. The U.S. is perhaps the laggard of the major global economies in this space. If you compare us to the U.K. or most of Western Europe or Northern Europe, we just don't equip very well. I think part of that is the nature of the U.S. is everybody takes responsibility for themselves. It's all about independence. We're not... um, we're not a, a very socially inclined toward big big government taking care of uh, individual financial needs. But I think that is an opportunity set because the major asset management firms can help can help people combine uh, compound their their retirement savings over time so that they uh, heighten the probability that savers can in fact have sufficient money to live on when they're not in a position to work anymore. So you mentioned a couple of times um, your staff and that um, you know everything's running very smoothly. You've got um, about half of the assets managed internally. Is that going to remain about the same, or are you looking at more internal, more external, and and what sort of internal resources are you going to need going forward? I think we will continue in the direction of gradually managing more in house. Um, we have the happy distinction of having very good performance results over many different periods of time, including the very long term. And at the same time, we have superior results. We are among the very lowest cost major pension fund investment organizations in the U.S. and more broadly in North America. A big part of that is the ability to manage money in-house simply because we can do it more cheaply than we can do it externally. So the key to us is two things. Number one, understanding what is realistic for us to do in-house. We will never compete with the Canadian funds that are in a position with their resources to do their own direct private equity and other investments. I don't think we'll ever be at that level, but we can do passive investing, factor investing, um, and maybe even a little bit of co-investing ourselves uh, or in partnership with some of our investment partners that serve as extensions of staff and acquit ourselves very nicely at very low cost. And if you think about the way expected forward returns have declined over recent years. Um, I think the last uh, portfolio we did, portfolio review we did a year ago, every October, late September, we look at our actuarial assumptions every year. I think the forward total total return anticipated for our portfolio over, over a 15-plus year period was 6.59%. And if you think about it, if you're looking at a total fund return that's well under 10%, if you can have a 50 basis point cost advantage over your peers, that's a meaningful tailwind to your aggregate performance. So we think, you know, we think like Benjamin Franklin, a, a penny saved is as, just as good as a penny earned. Um, so to the extent we can be a low-cost operator by managing more money in-house, we will. You ask the question, what do we need to do that? The first thing we need is the human capital and the talent to do it prudently. That we have, and I'm pleased to say that we have completely redid our compensation scheme um, about five years ago in a way that creates excellent alignment between our professional team 
our beneficiaries and the other stakeholders, including our trustees and Florida taxpayers. So we're good on the talent side. And then beyond that, you need the systems to execute prudently and to manage risk prudently. I think we're doing very well there, and we're coming further and further up the curve in terms of um, automating a lot of those systems and having them be very efficient. And you got to be partnered with the right folks to make it all come together. And the partnerships have to be structured in a way that everybody understands what is expected of them and why they will benefit from fulfilling their part of the overall uh, enterprise. And together, uh, all of us will grow and prosper. That's the idea. I think mutual prosperity is the adhesive uh, that holds together the best of investment relationships and helps um, the investor and the manager grow together to be of meaningful size to each other over over time. Absolutely. Ash, we've covered a lot of ground today and you've been extremely generous with sharing your story. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your time and um, please stay safe. Thank you, Amanda. You too. Take care. And thanks again for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.